Humility is a hard thing to come by. Uh, it really, truly is. Uh, if we, we, it, humility just faces far more resistance, I think, than, than we know. C.S. Lewis gives us some wonderful, shall I say, devilish insight into this in his classic, The Screwtape Letters, where he writes this. Um, now, by the way, in case you're not familiar with The Screwtape Letters, this is one tempter, uh, a senior tempter, uh, writing to his underling, his trainee, uh, about how to trip up said Christian, they're, they're, uh, the object of their labors. So Screwtape says, I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility will appear. You see, as though humility wasn't hard enough, we have this very real spiritual opposition going on within us. And, and then there's the problem of examples. Where do we look to for genuine models of humility? In case you hadn't figured this out, you cannot look in the world of politics. Have you watched debates? Have you looked at any, read any, or watched any stump speeches? You cannot look to and both parties. Both parties, especially when you've got bad hair, but I'll just stop with that. Listen! Listen to what they're saying. Listen to their grand, grandiose listing of their accomplishments and their plans, what they're sure to be able to do. I'm not going to find it in the realm of politics, uh, all that boasting. But, but nor can we then, well, maybe we can find refuge. Maybe there's some place, some, some little insulation, insulated place where we can go to and we won't be harmed by all that boasting, all that bra braggadocious foolishness. Oh, let's, if we could only just go to our children. Here's the picture. Said little Johnny or Sally, you're watching them and they've got their chubby little fingers and they're working so hard on tying those laces and you've got somewhere to go and the clock is turning and you say to said child, can I help you? And what is the response? No! I can do it, fill in the blank, all by myself. Which is a good thing, by the way. I mean, you want them to be moving in that direction, but at the same time, in that existential moment, it can be so maddening. We have nowhere to go. Uh, humility is a hard thing to come by. Here's the strange thing. It's compelling and winsome. We're drawn to it. But at the same time, it is utterly elusive and fleeting. Well, let's look at the Scriptures. What does Jesus have to teach us about this? If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we are moving on into our Study in the Gospel of Matthew, that's the first of the Gospels, Matthew, then Mark, and Luke, and John, the first of the books of the New Testament. This is the 
we kind of just began, did a little brief intro uh, in the Sermon on the Mount last week. The Beatitudes were just kind of beginning that. And as I said last week, the plan is to take these one at a time, these eight of these Beatitudes. I'm going to read the, the whole of the Beatitudes, verses 1 through 12. Uh, but we're really, of course, honing in, as you'll see here on verse 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Lord, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, indeed, how can we keep our way pure by guarding it? According to your word, with our whole hearts we seek you. Let us not wander from your commandments. We have stored up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach us your statutes. Oh, would your testimonies be our delight, more so than in all riches. Oh, would it be your precepts that we meditate upon, your ways that we fix our eyes upon, our delight in our, your statutes, our remembering, never forgetting, never turning aside from your word. Oh, we ask that you would make that indeed our own words, our own prayer. And we ask that this now in for these few minutes as we are delving into, indeed, your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Communication is never easy. Communication is never easy. For starters, it's, it's, there's two parts to it, and we oftentimes forget just that elementary component. It's not just speaking. It's listening. That's kind of important thing to remember uh, when it comes to communication. Also, there's the, the problem of words, the problems of vocabulary, the problems of definitions. Do I mean what you think I mean? Do you mean what I think you mean? And the need to understand you know, how I use, how you use, how we use certain words. It gets more complicated all the more so because words change. The meaning of words change over time. Historians will tell you that that has always been the case with Words, for as long as there have been speakers to speak them, words and their definitions and what we mean by them change and shift over time. Let me, let me give you just a brief sampling. I was looking at this, this just this past week. Nice. Nice. You know what it used to mean? It used to mean silly. It used to mean simple, foolish. Not exactly the compliment we mean, you know, today by that word. Uh, or awful. That used to meant something worthy or someone worthy of, all, of awe, of, of respect. This may surprise you. Am I being recorded? Hussy. Hussy, in its original form, once referred to a housewife. It's true. 
gay once meant vibrantly colorful, lively, in its original derivation and definitions. Now, we, we laugh at that. We snicker at this. We, it's, it's interesting uh, table conversation. But here's the deal. This, this is vital to know what words mean and what we mean by them when we use them, especially when stakes are high. Well, Jesus says here, he uses this word, blessed. Blessed are those who fill in the blank. Well, what does he mean? Some people translate this, and, and you'll see this in other translations. It's not blessed are, but happy are. Well, that just won't do. It's far too subjective. It's putting far too much weight on our, our, our feelings. Nothing wrong with feelings, but that's not what this word is about. Others go a little much of a little step further and say, well, it's joyful. You know, putting some deeper roots down in that happiness, and that's that's helpful, that's true, but the problem is that too is prone to misunderstanding because of how we tend to use even, even that word. So what does it mean? Well, the original Greek, in case you care, actually even if you don't, I'm going to tell you, is makarioi. Makarioi means actually fortunate. So what Jesus is getting at here is, is he is describing someone we should envy. We should uh, want to emulate. We should want to aspire towards being like. That's what he means when he said, blessed. He, he, is, he is speaking here of, of human, deep, lasting flourishing. He is speaking of life the way it is meant to be, the way it's ought to be. Now, these Beatitudes, there are eight of them. They are not separate. It's not as though he's describing one group of people that can be this and another group of people that can be that and is separated out and, you know, oh, it's, it's like, you know, based on your inclinations. No, he's describing not separate groups of people, but the same group of people, his followers, the children of the living God, citizens of the kingdom. We're all to be these things as he has laid out here, Jesus is making clear the way our lives should be. He's making clear the way our lives should be. We then, as we're listening, should be heeding this and pursuing it. Heeding this and pursuing it. But what would that look like? What would it look like to hear what he's saying, heed this, and then pursue it? Well, that's where your outline comes into play. Those Roman numerals there on your notes. I have a, a who, a why, and a how. Who? Who? Who is he talking about? Who is this? Who is he describing? Why? Why are these people described in the way that they are as being blessed? And what's going on there? And how? How might that be true of us? How could those things perhaps be said of even us? Well, first then. Uh, who are they? Who is Jesus talking about? The poor in spirit. Understand that this is going far beyond material poverty, uh, of any physical economic lacking. It goes far beyond that. The word that is translated here in the English as poor is referring to an extreme form of poverty, of, of utter destitution of just no resources whatsoever. Now, keeping in mind Jesus' Jewish context and who he's speaking here to 
and also an understanding of the, the richness of when that kind of verbiage is used in the Old Testament, it was understood to go hand in hand with this. Someone who is turning to and trusting in God. So when Jesus says, he makes reference to not just the poor, that's what he's, that's what he's talking about, but then when he says the poor in spirit, he's adding that just to emphasize the point, to drive it harder home. All the more so. Someone who is absolutely, utterly dependent upon God. They have nothing to offer. They come into His presence. They come before Him with absolutely nothing in their hands but their need. That is who Jesus is speaking of here. That is who the poor in spirit are. They are without resources. They are spiritually bankrupt, and they know that of themselves. They know they have no resources to save themselves. They have no goodness, no merit, nothing to bring to the table. Their best works, their best days, their best tries are nil and void. They understand that zero times 100 of your best days is what? Still zero. They have no resources whatsoever to save themselves. They have no resources whatsoever to even follow Christ, to even live as a Christian. It goes that far, the bankruptcy, the lack of, of resources that we have. Again, utterly dependent upon God. Poor in spirit. Jesus could not have made this any plainer in his teaching. Time and again, he speaks to such things. For instance, keep your thumb here in Matthew 5. Go with me to John 15. Now, that's the fourth of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 15, verses 5 through 8. John 15, verses 5 through 8. Listen to what Jesus is saying here. He's using this agricultural image that his, his hearers would have understood. We would too. We, you don't really have to be a farmer. You don't even have to be a gardener to get what Jesus is saying here, verses 5 through 8, John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. To be poor in spirit is these two things. To know your need and to be looking to the Lord. To know your need and to be looking to the Lord. That is to be poor in spirit. I said we, can't, we have nowhere to go to find models. Actually, I, I lied. Jesus exemplifies what it is to be poor in spirit. He and he alone, who has all of what it is for life, all the resources for life in and of himself, lived a life at the same time of utter dependency upon God. It's absolutely striking. It's stunning. How did he respond? How did he, how did he uh, engage with the tempter, Satan, in the course of the temptation, as it's oftentimes referred to? Just one chapter earlier in Matthew chapter 4. 
by looking to the Word of God. He relied upon the Scriptures. He was dependent upon the Word of God to face the, the tempter. And then his life of prayer, his devotion to prayer, in, in, facing, in, in the times of needing guidance, staying up all night praying before the selection of his disciples, seeking guidance in that, seeking strength there in the Garden of Gethsemane before his betrayal and his execution, a life of being poor in the Spirit. Being poor in the Spirit is to live absolutely dependent upon the Lord. What, is it, what does that look like then for us? It means that we will, we are, we're not self-directing. We're not self-determining, thinking that we can go it alone, do it alone, but rather we will find our wisdom in His Word. We will not then be, to be poor in spirit is not to be self-directing, nor is it to be self-reliant. Thinking our abilities, our strengths, our propensities are enough, but rather we will be committed to a life we will see, so we see prayer as a central, a central, essential and central. And not just in times of crisis, but daily, continually, a life of prayer. Jesus has made clear this the way our lives should be. Be poor in spirit. We need to be heeding that, pursuing that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is, well, here's the why. Why are they blessed? Why are they described this way? Why are they held up this, this way? Why are, why are they described as someone that we ought to be aspiring to be like and, and emulating? Why is this something that we ought to want to be, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. And that's a, a term, it's a concept we've looked at several times in the course of this little series already through Matthew's gospel. You look back at chapter 4, verse 17, where Matthew, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, sums up the whole of Jesus' message. What does he say? Verse 17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, in essence, what, what Jesus' message was and is. What is the kingdom of heaven? How would you define that? It is the rule and reign of God on earth as it is in heaven, as we're taught to pray. It's the way things are meant to be, the sure and eventual coming and thoroughgoingly so of the way things are meant to be. And Jesus is saying that those who are poor in spirit, those who know their need and are leaning into him with all they are, those are who possess the kingdom. Not the high and mighty, but the poor and lonely. Those are the ones who are included. Those are the ones who are participating. Those are the ones who, will be, who are and will be celebrated. But when will it be this? When, when, when do the poor in spirit lay hold of this? The kingdom of heaven. Well, there's a future element and a present element. As far as a future element goes, well, certainly the king has to return in order for the, uh, the flourishing of the kingdom to be realized in full. Uh, his kingdom has been inaugurated with his first coming, but it hasn't yet to be consummated. It has come, but not yet in full, for so there's certain that future element that we there's a sense of expectation. But at the same time, 
there is a present element because even as it has yet to come in full, it has come. Even though it has yet to be consummated in full, it has been inaugurated. Which means we can lay hold of the promises of Christ now. We do have the wonder of His presence with us now. The work of His Spirit in our lives and the efficacy of His Word taking place now. Listen, there's the astonishment. Listen to the astonishment when you just... With all that in mind, verse 3, again, blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah, that's right. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the grand reversal, upending all the value systems of the world. Now, the Beatitudes, I said a moment ago, that they are not to be separated out as though it's just all these different groups, and you know, eight different groups or whatever, but, but rather it's the same, describing the same one group of, of people, his, his followers, the citizens of the kingdom. That is to say, each of us, every one of us, is to be poor in spirit or mourning or meek and so on. But here's the follow-up to that. Not only are those virtues to be true of every one of us in increasing measure, but the blessings are also true of all of us as well. It's not as though that just for an elite among us is the promise now and in the future of the kingdom. It's for all of us. Do you know that? If you're poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Now think of the effect that that, that ought to have as we let that you know move down into our bones as we take that deeply into our hearts. So let's just break it up in terms of a future and present element. Future, okay. So think how laying hold of that can free you and enable you to reckon with, without bitterness, the disappointments of your life. Knowing that the best is yet to come. And it is coming. Think how that frees us and enables us. And I've talked about this before a few, some weeks ago. It frees us and enables us to just lay aside. Lay aside that stupid bucket list. That self-centered, because it's all it really is about us, list of the things we think we've got to do and lay hold of for life to really count for something in this go-around in life. When Jesus is telling us, no, this is just a preview. The kingdom is coming. It has come, but has yet to come in full. That frees us and enables us to be really engaged with everything now and content with things now, but okay, that's the future element. What about the present element? Oh, my friends, you have a king. It's not you will have a king. You do have a king whose word is always true, whose ways with you now are always good. 
and whose love is always sure. Now. Now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is making clear the way our lives should be. Oh, that we would heed this and pursue it. Now that then takes us to the last thing. It all begs this, this final question. Not just who are they and why are they blessed, but how could these things be true of us? I've got three quick little things to say there. How could these things be true of us? First, by not looking at ourselves so dang much. By not being so obsessive about trying so hard, working so hard, doing better, as though what we did is more deserving. That's where the monastic movement went off the rails and has gone off the rails. Good disciplines in many ways, in and of themselves, but meant and, and explored and carried out with a sense of, well, then I'll deserve something. That's, that, you know, that'll just make things worse. It'll make you neurotic. That's what happened to Martin Luther before he got the gospel, before the Lord laid hold of him. Obsessive, ruminating, compulsive about screwing up on this and falling short on that. And then he was set free by the grace of Jesus. Not looking at ourselves and not looking so much at others either. And by that I mean this. Um, the comparing game we play. Which goes like this. One flawed, fallen sinner comparing themselves and building themselves up by, by judging another flawed, screwed up sinner. Well, that's great. It doesn't do us any good at all. In fact, it does our hearts great harm. Destroys relationships and infuses pride within our hearts. So not looking at ourselves, not looking at others, but looking to the Lord, looking to God. First, looking at the standards that He has set. Yeah, that's right. Looking at the standards that He has set, facing our sin, how we have fallen short, honestly, Facing our transgressions. Omission, commission. Thought, word, and deed. And allowing ourselves to be humbled down into the gravel, into the dust. And not playing it down, not making excuses. Looking at the standards that He has set and looking to the Savior, the Son that He has sent to save us from all that. And there we see all that it cost Him, all that His love for you and I cost Him, and all that we are worth to Him. That's to whom we look. How, how, how can this be true of us? How can it be true of us that we would be poor in spirit, that ours would then be, that we would then be blessed for ours is the kingdom of heaven, that we would be not looking at ourselves, not looking at others, but looking to God. And Jesus knows we are so desperately in need of having this pressed and impressed again and again and again into our hard, stubborn hearts. He told stories about this. 
to just try and get it across. Maybe one more sneaky, subversive way. Those stories are called parables, and they are sneaky and subversive. Luke 18. Turn with me to Luke 18. Jesus told uh, a story to make this very point that they need not to look at ourselves, not to look at others, but to look only to the Lord, that we would be poor in spirit and therein be blessed. And note the context, who he's telling the story to, who's listening for the occasion, Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How can these things be true of us? How can we be so blessed by being poor in spirit? How can we look to God? Let me suggest a couple things there. Um, you know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, he makes this point that it is when he found this to be true, this, this principle in his life, that when he was weak, that's when he knew himself to be strong. When he was facing weaknesses and insults and persecutions and difficulties in his life, and they were, I mean, you read the list the man faced, it was in that that he found himself to be strong because it was in those circumstances he knows he's got nothing and he has, to, he has only to look to Jesus. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. I guess this is where I'm going with this. Ask yourself and ask the Lord to reveal this to you. Where is it you find yourself strong? Where is it in your life you think yourself to be strong? Because, my friends, it's right there you're weak. See, that's the inference, right? That's the implication. If where I'm weak, there I'm strong. But you have to turn it. Where I'm strong... That's right where I'm weakest. My friends, where, are you, where do you think yourself to be strong? Where do, you, where do you think yourself to be self-sufficient? And where are you self-reliant? That is your weakest point. The last thing I would suggest is to, and this is so easy, it's so obvious, I, almost, I feel like I'm insulting you by saying it, but I'll just say it anyway. Read the Scriptures, and in particular these Gospels, with this in mind, praying that the Lord would help you to see what these eyewitnesses were seeing. Hear what they were hearing. That the holy standards that Jesus is lifting up would lay you low, but at the same time, that love and mercy and compassion that is flowing out of Him would fill your heart with hope and wonder. that we would then be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is, I don't have to tell you this, I'll just, I'm just making an observation. This is, right, so 
completely counter. Counter to the spirit of the age, counter to the ways of the world, counter to the values of our culture, counter to the inclinations of my heart and yours. Because if the truth be told, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be like this. There's a deep, dark streak in all of our hearts that despises this. And that's why it's so hard to find. That's why you can't find it in the realm of politics or the children's playroom or in your own heart. So where then can we look to see something like this? The pool or the beach. What? Explain. Here's the scene. There's a man out there in the water. He's literally in and over his head. He's bobbing. He's sinking. He's struggling. He's going to drown. You see another person over there, a lifeguard ostensibly, who's watching. Sees the whole thing. He's waiting. You're asking yourself, why doesn't he jump in and save that poor man? And you remember... You remember a course that you took a long time ago or maybe something that somebody told you a long time ago that there's a technique to all of this. That you can't, a lifeguard can't just dive in at the first sign of trouble. Because the, the reality is that drowning man or woman is panicking. And they will grab the first thing they can and take it down with them. So the lifeguard has to wait and wait and wait until this point comes when they're weak enough to save. When they're weak enough to save. You know that's the way that God is with us? That's also a mark of Jesus' disciples. That's a mark of the citizens of the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we have no other shelter, no other refuge, no other fortress, no other hope but You. And that is true all the time. Not just when it's obvious, not just in the crises, but every day and every trial and every circumstance and every difficulty, You are the vine and we are the branches, when we're weak, then we're strong. We have no resources in and of ourselves, but we have more than we can imagine with you. And we ask that you would not allow this, this beatitude, to stay in a theoretical, contemplative sort of realm, but rather, would you give us the ability to apply it this does not come natural to us. In fact, some of us here this morning are too scared to try this. Are too scared to even consider it. Too scared to trust you. We pray that you would help them. Help us all. Oh Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. In your name we pray. Amen.